disclaimer. The discussions and personal opinions of the guests do not replace professional advice. It's recommended that you seek your own independent professional mental health or legal support to meet your individual needs. But there was a moment in time where I thought I could just get in my car and drive away now. I have to go back into the hospital and face all of that that has happened. I don't know how I'm going to get through this. I don't know what's going to happen. I, I have no control in this situation and I feel so vulnerable. Hello, welcome to today's episode of Life in the Cyclone podcast. Sean Lutz is a podcast host, renowned radio host and a corporate digital content creator and consultant. What sets Sean apart is his incredible journey as a first-time father, a role that led him to confront profound challenges. His daughter Zoe was born with complex neurodevelopmental and neurological conditions, including intractable epilepsy and global developmental delay. Sean's story is a testament to the extraordinary power of grit, determination and psychological flexibility that love can inspire in a father's heart. Join us as he shares his inspiring journey of unwavering devotion to Zoe and the resilience he's discovered along the way. Hello Sean and welcome to Life in the Cyclone podcast. I'm absolutely excited to have you on, talk to you about your story. Um, We've known each other for such a long time back in the Auburn University, Alabama, some camp days, and we've been blessed to maintain and keep our friendship over the years. In the more recent times, you have an absolutely gorgeous daughter, Zoe. You've shed light on her life journey, your story, And I'm so intrigued just because it's a story of resilience. It's a beautiful one. There's lots of ins and outs that I'd love to get into talking to you about. But that's what we're going to talk about today. But first up, I'd like to say welcome and thank you for coming on. It's an absolute pleasure. It's such a thrill to be able to chat with you again. As you quite rightly say, we've known one another for such a long time. Uh, But there's also an ocean between us. Me based in South Africa, you based in Australia, having met in the USA. What a whirlwind a com- combination of, of experiences. Um, and yeah, to be able to sit with you and have conversations with you is just an absolute joy. So can you hear that whistling? Can you hear my dogs in the background? No, I can't actually hear them, but I, I think I saw one. <laughs> the one decided to stay, the other one's gone out. So there oh, we go. That's so funny because I might give you a heads up. If you hear a little bark in the background, that's also mine. <laughs> So dog people, look, there was an immediate connection when we met back in, what was it, 2006, somewhere Oh gosh, there. I can't, 2006, 2000, I was there, 2000 and, end of 2006, 2009, or something like four and a half years. I recently heard about your story from yourself directly about Zoe. I know you have your podcast. I love what it's about and the message that is being put out there in the community. Would you be able to shed some light on your story with Zoe? I know it's a big one, so I'm happy to be guided by you and start where you like and I guess a place that you think would be a good place to start. 100%. Thank you very much for the opportunity to to talk about her. Um, 
having a child that you can speak about so proudly, I think, is everybody, every parent's dream. And whether you have a, a human child or a fur child, <laughs> we about them with such vigor and intensity. Um, so to get a chance to do that is really cool. Zoe was born in 2016. Mm-hmm. So she's seven years old now. Yes, it has been an interesting journey having a child that has special needs. It was a, a very rude awakening to what that means and how it is that you as a parent cope with um, the, the trials and tribulations that come your way. Uh, prior to Zoe's birth, we knew that there was something brewing, but we didn't know what. We had seen specialists and they had basically said to us there is a... Uh, the ventricles in her brain are wider than what they should be, mm-hmm. but they can't necessarily establish what that meant at the time, uh, short of us doing invasive surgery, which of course we didn't want to do. Which was while your wife was pregnant, right? Yes. Uh, my wife's name is Ruenda. Oh, beautiful. Uh, so yes, when Ru was still pregnant, they wanted to do invasive surgery. Uh, operations and we said no thank you very much that's far too dangerous for everybody involved so then when zoe was born there were some slight complications and obviously they knew that there were some things going on that we, they weren't quite sure on what they would be uh, so when she struggled to breathe when she came out um on the 21st of january 2016 mm. uh, she was put into uh, neonatal icu where she spent a good 12 days uh, and they monitored her um, during that time, they came to realize that she was struggling to breathe, not because of the, the brain-lung coordination, but more because she'd taken on fluids. And it was a very normal thing that happened during a cesarean section. Uh, and they basically said to us after those 12 days, she's recovered enough. You can take her home. Just treat her like any normal kid. And let's just see, you know, measurement of her head is large. It means she may have a large brain inside that. All things are normal. Let's not do anything too invasive right now. Fast forward six months later. And uh, it was an evening where we were going through the usual routine. And so we just stopped responding. She slowly went gray and I get her mouth to mouth. Uh, we rushed her down to ER. And by the time we got to ER, she seemed fine. But the doctor that was on call suggested, let's just monitor her overnight. And that ultimately led to us spending a good 50 odd days in hospital. And at the end of that hospital stay, we moved from one hospital to the next and more specialists and more blah, 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 blah. Uh, Ultimately, they diagnosed her with uh, intractable epilepsy and developmental delays. So you would know intractable epilepsy, relatively difficult to manage. Mm -hmm. And basically what it comes down to is that the shape of her brain is why those those signals are misfiring. The brain didn't fully develop. And therefore, there's misfiring and therefore epileptic fits or seizures. And having a six-month-old child, your first child, that has seizures that nobody can really fix for you. And you're the go-between between the doctor and obviously your child. It means that anything you see could potentially be a seizure. And therefore, the medication could potentially not be working. So if I over diagnose the number of seizures we've seen in a day, the doctors are even more medication. Mm-hmm. And if I diagnose the number of seizures I see in a day, they're going to reduce the medication. So mm-hmm. we were her eyes and ears and mouthpiece. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, I've learned so much about epilepsy. I think there's still so much still to learn. Mm-hmm. But in his case, very focal seizures, 
And the only thing that it was affecting was her eyes and her breathing, because that those are the only neural pathways that were really developed at that stage. Wow. And I've now come to learn, now that she's seven years old and she's capable of so much more, there are far more neurological pathways that are developed, which means if she were to have a seizure now, it's going to look very different to the way it looked when she was six months old. So that's a very fast forward way of trying to tell some of the story. Oh, it totally is. You know what? And I love that you got through like the main gist of it because actually I'm going to slow it down (laughs) a long way so that we can better understand the ins and outs of the story. First off, I'm so curious and maybe we'll break down, let's say the diagnoses that they've given first um there was i forget the word what did you use um intractable intractable epilepsy then there was global developmental delays and yes we give global developmental delay as a diagnosis in a psychology space when they're under five years old because they're essentially not meeting developmental milestones Psychologists have an increasing awareness and practices that are transdiagnostic in approach to mental ill health so what does transdiagnostic actually mean A transdiagnostic approach allows for a greater understanding of mental health difficulties and an improved conceptualization around onset, maintenance and clinical treatment recovery and how someone may recover from disabling mental distress. It's a lot more humanistic that is multifaceted, taking into consideration medical, neurological and other issues that underpin and maintain a mental health disorder. Why is this important? As you can hear, Zoe has a medical diagnosis of intractable epilepsy that then leads to another diagnosis of global developmental delay and developmental deficits or differences in brain processes that produce impairments of personal, social, academic or occupational functioning. The range of developmental deficits or differences varies that limit learning or control of executive functions to global impairments of social skills or intellectual ability. Okay, now let's get back to the conversation. I'm curious, are you able to share about the intractable epilepsy just to see that happen in a six-month-old who is just a tiny little human being What was that like for you? Because I think it's quite a scary experience. It was daunting. It's exceptionally nerve-wracking. I'm very blessed to have a wife that stands by my side and I by hers through everything. I think our relationship has gotten stronger because of our shared challenges. And yeah, you quite rightly say, a very small child that we don't know, I mean, first child, how do you deal with a, a baby in the first place, right? And now add to this health complications. I would say through the majority of the, that first year, I probably shut down if that, mm. if I look back at it. If you ask me how I felt, I think I was scared and worried, but I wouldn't have said that at the time. Mm-hmm. I was concerned and confused, but I also wouldn't have said that at the time. <laughs> yep. Doing my best to listen to what the doctors had to say, but I was also trying not to read any literature because I only wanted to know what I needed to know. And I also didn't want to speak about much of what was going on inside the hospital walls for fear that any sound bite that I were to leave with a friend or family member mm-hmm. may stick in their brains, something negative that they then keep repeating back to me again 
and I didn't, I didn't want that. I, in fact, Ru and I sat very carefully from time to time, and we would only communicate with our friends and family when we felt there was something that they really needed to know. So despite being in a academic hospital at the time, uh, and you've got loads of different disciplines from the doctor sense coming through and giving you ideas and suggestions and new tests that they want to run, we would hold back on any of that information until we actually had something solid that we could you know, share with people outside of the hospital, if that makes sense. So it was very, we, we tried to control the information. We would only send out press releases when there was good stuff to say, you know? Absolutely, um, yep. Or when it was more certain, it sounds like, because then you would only be almost playing a game of Chinese whispers of, you know, in what we would say in a, a healthcare setting. It's a differential diagnosis that honestly takes time to rule in and rule out particular symptoms, diagnoses, and you want to be clear on that too. Correct. And at the time she was struggling with reflux. She was struggling to maintain weight. Um, and there are lots of things about the way her body was made up that made it made it confusing for the doctors to figure out what the actual cause of her uh, stopping breathing was. Was it the fact that she was refluxing and then aspirating because the food was going back down into her lungs and she was struggling to breathe. And is that what was causing her to turn blue? Was it indeed a seizure? So there was a lot of multidisciplinary doctors involved with Zoe, especially in the beginning. And she's also exceptionally low muscle toned. So lifting her own arms and legs is was near impossible. Yeah. Um, at the time, she, her hands were very clenched. Her legs were very crossed over. She was a very tight a, a baby, all of her muscles. There was no tone whatsoever. So there's probably an element of sort of cerebral palsy built yeah. into diagnosis uh, because of the way her brain is structured. Yeah. In terms of how I was doing, if I think back, there's one instance I can recall for you, Rachel. Mm -hmm. We were in this hospital, which is the Red Cross Children's Hospital in Cape Town, mm -hmm. world-renowned, really great doctors, academic hospital. Mm -hmm. um, it's a government hospital and it's funded with all sorts of other um, supplementary funding. And I remember it was a very rainy day and we live a good 40 minutes away from the hospital and we would take turns to be inside the, the unit with her. Nonetheless, long story short, I needed to go and fetch something, which meant I had to leave the hospital, get in the car and drive away. Yeah. And I remember vividly walking through the rain with my car keys in my hands. It's pouring down, it's gray and this thought crossed my mind as I looked down and I had my car keys, I had my wallet and I had my phone. And it's awful to admit, and I have said this to my wife, but there was a moment in time where I thought I could just get in my car and drive away now. I have to go back into the hospital and face all of that that has happened. Yeah. If I'm strong enough to take this on, I don't know how I'm gonna get through this. I don't know what's going to happen i i have no control in this situation and i feel so vulnerable yeah and so fragile you know yeah oh i came back and you know i carried on and i think to back to your question with regards to how did i feel i suppose that was maybe a pivotal point where i could have shut myself down completely and walked away or just decided i wasn't going to get involved that's not the way I'm wired. So it's so normal. I cannot tell you how normal when we work in a mental health setting and the space as a psychologist it is really normal because that idea and that is just a thought under crisis. And when you said like you were shut down, 
that you wouldn't have said at the time that you were confused and you were concerned or that you um, couldn't acknowledge what emotions and the vulnerability you had at the time, what often happens is because it's such a crisis situation around you with Zoe, you go into a survival mode, you go into a space where you just essentially crisis manage everyday tasks. What often happens with psychological trauma and traumatic um, you know, post-PTSD, let's say, um, that most people can relate to, often they feel the after impacts of trauma well down the road when they are in a relaxed space where their brains and their minds can actually process what was, not in the time of the moment because often much of the things that I'm talking about with people is helping them understand that survival no, survival mode is actually so normal and I think you can say that now in a space of Zoe being seven years old and understanding the level of distress you had to manage. There was so much information around you. And I think it just is a good indication, obviously, what you're saying about how much you just had to do. And that thought to leave is quite normal. And I don't ever doubt that you would have ever come back and parented Zoe the way that you currently do. <laughs> Thank you for the faith. Thank you for mm -hmm. that. Mm. Yeah, you're quite right. If I think back on, as you describe it, it's crisis mode, it's managing everything that's happening mm. around. Um, at the time, I was still working on radio, I had an afternoon drive time show. Mm -hmm. I had one of the biggest shows on the station at the time, I worked with a team of people. And I had phoned my boss and said, I don't know if I can come in. Like, I, I don't think I should it's a situation whereby you need to let them know a couple of days in advance whether mm. you're going to make it or they can make contingency plans. And I said, I think maybe I must just take leave. I don't know how long I'm going to be in the hospital. And I remember him saying to me, that's not going to help you financially, Sean, you need the finances. So rather tell me on the day, if you've had a really rough day in hospital mm. that day, let me know and I will find someone to stand in for you. And I thought, wow, what a great gesture. Yeah. And I took it and I rolled with it. And we did that for a good four weeks at the very least. And it probably pushed over to six or seven weeks. And I was really grateful. Um, and there were days that I would go in and do my radio show and be all happy. And there were days that I wouldn't. Yeah. And I know now looking back, having gone through the burnout years later, mm. that, that situation forced me to be two different people at the same time. I would be dad in hospital and managing whatever information was coming my way, whatever feelings I was feeling, whatever feelings my family, my wife were feeling. And then I would leave and go and entertain Cape Town as best I could with mm, jokes and, yeah. and live music. Mm. Like, I was, I had to split personality. I can't say I had a split, but I think you understand what the, yes. what I'm trying to get at. I was operating as though I was two different people and I just couldn't do it anymore. Yes, you were compartmentalizing in a way. Let's say I would probably more describe that as you what had to maintain doing? functionality because you had to. Like as your beautiful boss said, it won't help you financially because if you let that go, you'll be in a bigger state of crises. And to a degree, you do have to function on a basic level. And that's where I was saying until you are able and your mind, your body, your life and where you're at, multiple variables, but until you're able to process what you're going through, you may do that at a later date, you know, because I'm curious and I hear you speak about it and I can see you when you talk about when you reflect and sort of share Zoe's story. And I did say I'll slow it down. There was so much 
to manage with her, her diagnoses, intractable epilepsy and the global developmental delays and other. It's like, you know, and I'm going to kind of focus on you here before we come back to Zoe, but what was it like for you in terms of being a parent, emotions and feelings, your own mental health? How would you say um, you either went through it and then recovered from it down the road? I think I was definitely coping. If I use a swimming analogy, I was probably drowning in the deep end. Mm. Uh, but I didn't admit it. I mm -hmm. didn't think it was that bad. Uh, I'm generally a very pragmatic, analytical, although I'm also quite creative. But at the same, in this, in that sense, I would take each day for each day and try and break that up into hours and then break them down in further into minutes. And especially in the beginning, because Zoe wasn't obviously not verbal, um, very dependent on us, we would watch her 24 seven yeah. so that we could back to the doctors to say the medication is working or not working. And again, being her parent, I could tell if she was having a seizure, but onlookers couldn't. So if Zoe were to blink her eyes rapidly, or to purse her lips almost in, you know, almost gasping for air, or if her color were to change ever so slightly, or maybe she just didn't move for a bit, that to me signaled the seizure because those are of the ways her seizures would um, manifest. And right? you knew her better than anyone else. Any specialist, you would know those um, minute changes, which are so important to note. Which means you're constantly on high alert. I could tell if she was asleep and you could hear the rhythm in her breathing change. Wow. Having a seizure. Oh, wow. And very focal. And at the time they were very short lived. And obviously as the doctors are managing us, they're saying, well, you know, if they start to cluster, if she has a so short focal seizure and then a few minutes later she has it again. And then a few minutes later she has it again, but then they, the time between each of those seizures gets shorter and the seizures themselves get longer, then we'll probably have to give her a loading dose of medication, which will put her to sleep and dampen the brain waves so that her brain and her body can sort of recover. Yeah. And we went through the process multiple times. Yeah. There were times where we rushed her back to hospital, not knowing how to take care of her or what to do for oh. her to keep her alive. And, and out of desperation, I imagine, to just seek some kind of professional support because that's what happened in emergency departments. 100%. And there were times where we had now come home and Rue was at home with Zoe and I would get to work. And as I would walk into the studio, into the building 20 minutes before my show starts, I would get a message from my wife to say, Zoe's just turned blue. Do you think I should give her a loading dose? Right now I'm 40 minutes away. My wife's sitting with a child in her arms that's changing color and <sighs> the panic she's feeling, I can feel even though I'm far away. Yeah. I can even feel that talking to you. Yeah. So, it's a lot of emotions simultaneously. And as I said to you earlier, I've walked into a studio where I'm filled, I mean, surrounded with people that are happy and have had great days and are looking forward to playing music and playing games. And I've just walked in carrying this cloud of my child's having seizures at home and yeah. I can't be there to support my wife. Can I ask you, I was wanting, you know, because I know you mentioned it before and I've heard you speak about this absolutely incredible, beautiful story, beautiful and dark. A child turning blue, a child turning grey, and you are carrying that cloud of distress and panic and worry. 
Can you go into a little bit more detail about that for you holding that experience? I can try. Um, <laughs> the holding of the experience on the outside, I am a happy-go-lucky um, live wire. I like things around me to be loud and to be colorful and to be dynamic and to change. And I can now say in hindsight that definitely the first, I would say maybe the first year it hadn't really hit me, maybe into year two, year three, by the time we got to year four, I slow, I could tell I was losing my personality. I could tell that I was shutting down. I could tell that I didn't, I didn't seek out things to bring me joy. Mm -hmm. And I had told myself that I couldn't do those things. Mm -hmm. I told myself that my family situation was such that it was impossible for us to go out because do we take medication with us? What if she has a seizure? Where do we go? Uh, I had told myself that it's just too difficult. So don't. Don't, don't do it. Yeah. And in time, you would know, this really dampened my own personality, my own creativity, my own needs for companionship like there's I, I have very few friends that can understand what we went through yep. and I don't expect them to understand it it's it's a really difficult story to have to retell and unless you've lived something like this you can never fully grasp the intense trauma the intense um I can't say I didn't have night terrors but that that sort of things that just come back at you when you're least expecting them yeah um whether it be the beeping of the all of the things happening in hospital, that yep, constant, yep. constant, yep. Um, the sleep deprivation that builds. Trauma and stressor-related disorders are a category of mental health disorders in the DSM-5-TR, including exposure to a traumatic or stressful event with explicit criteria for each diagnosis. Acute stress disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, in short, PTSD and adjustment disorder are a few within this category. The psychological distress following exposure to a traumatic or stressful event is quite variable. A point of differentiation between acute stress disorder and PTSD is that in acute stress disorder, the onset and duration is three days up to one month of intrusive symptoms, negative mood, dissociative symptoms, avoidance and arousal symptoms. This means that the symptoms are present for a short time and resolved after one month of experiencing the traumatic event. If not, and the symptoms continue to persist beyond a one-month duration and time frame, a diagnosis of PTSD is then warranted. Adjustment disorder also occurs in circumstances like this. However, the identifiable stressor is more broad and not limited to exposure to actual or threatened death, serious injury or sexual violence with many other explicit traumatic experiences. Why are we talking about this? Because emotional pain and traumatic memories can be stored in the body long after exposure to a traumatic situation has ended. Often when a distressing traumatic event occurs, the memory of that is stored in the brain and body differently from normal memory because of the high level of distressing emotions at the time of the event. 
Trauma memories are often frozen in time, locked in the nervous system, causing a loss of self-numbing reorganization of perception, stuckness and immobilization. Since memory and trauma are stored in the body and the brain, it continues to be triggered when a trauma-related cue comes along. Emotions connected to the traumatic event and memory arise when an individual feels out of control. Okay, now that we understand a little more about psychological distress, trauma and stressor-related disorders, let's get back to the conversation. So I would say that I definitely lost part of myself through the Mm. process. Which is um, so normal with trauma. I mean, I know when you say that it's friends and friendships, and I'm sure you know that you've had many conversations about it. But the interesting thing is I hear you as well. It was years and years of, I also say, enduring trauma or enduring the crisis, which means what happens to people in their brains and their bodies and their minds, they're basically acclimatised to that level of crisis, which is Panic, which is a hyperarousal, you start functioning in a space that's so unhealthy where, like you were saying, being relaxed and normal, uh, normal, relaxed and calm becomes more and more foreign, which if you are sustaining that level of hyperarousal, at some point you crash. And that's that relationship that I often talk to clients about with anxiety and depression because, it, you know, and the easy analogy I always use is hamster in a spinning wheel. A hamster right. in a spinning wheel cannot run that wheel all day long, at some point, it will crash. Right, yeah. right. 100%. Our minds do the same thing. It was definitely a period where we, we were in and out of hospital a lot, and not yeah. only because of seizures, but because of other health complications. If you've got a child that's got low muscle tone and she gets a cold, it's mm. more difficult to breathe. Um, she needs the support of oxygen machines. And then there's still the medication that you bring in, and there's a diet that we, we've got her in a ketogenic diet, which is like the oldest treatment for epilepsy dates back to, I think the early 19 or 1800s. Basically ratio foods that are fat ratio to protein, absolutely no sugar. So you're managing every single gram she eats, we've measured uh, combined with medicine that is prescribed by doctors combined with physiotherapy and speech therapy and occupational therapy and pediatricians. And they just really didn't feel like there was ever time to do anything that wasn't Zoe centric. And, and I'm not at all saying that I didn't want to do that. We, we decided we were going to give it our all. That first diagnosis, I, if I take you back to when she was six months old and we'd been sitting in Red Cross Children's Hospital, and we had been told that there is a really good neurologist and he's seen our MRIs and we was just wait for him to come around. And it took a couple of days before we got to see the doctor. And this is what we got used to. You wait for the doctors sometimes too. Nonetheless, our very first meeting with him, we were in the, the ward and we're in a ward with a good six or seven other kids and they're all relatively small. So they're in uh, uh, cots and they're yep. metal cots. So some of them are the sides are up, some of them the sides are down. Yep. And we were sitting between two of these cots when the doctor walked in and he started talking to us about Zoe. And I know I'm painting the picture for you now just to try and give you a sense of what the environment yeah. was. When he said to us that he feels that Zoe is a plane, an aeroplane that we cannot fix and we'll do our best to make her comfortable. She was six months old, Rachel. Six months wow. old. And we've already decided that this is it. I think there was something in both myself and my wife that said, you can't make that decision now. 
you've got far too little information to, to make that decision. When you say that, are you then implying or saying that, you know, basically that specialist or the doctor is saying to you that though we may not survive? Is that what he was somewhat saying? He was saying that having looked at the MRI scans and compared her brain to what I assume might be textbooks or other children at that yep. age. Developmental age, something average, yep. I would assume that's the, the comparison he had done. He had basically said that what she can do is what she can do. If, if she, he'd said to us, she will not sit, she will not walk, she will not talk, she will not feed herself, she will never be dependent, she will always be dependent. So in that sense, what you see is what you get and we can't fix this, this is it. Wow. Um, yep. Treat her and make her comfortable, but don't expect anything from her. And again, first time parents, six month old, we've got dreams and aspirations for ourselves and for our children, don't we? So, yeah, that was I, I see a beautiful silver lining here, and I've seen it many times before in parents, and I will share it with you because I think it's really important to say. Um, I see many parents who maybe have children with special needs or global developmental delay or some kind of neurodevelopmental issue, and yes, when they are told from a specialist that maybe there is little hope, and I say that because specialists and medical professionals always work from a risk um a risk space where they have to essentially identify it to you. But I have seen many parents who then dig their heels in harder and further and fiercely believe the impossible, which there is a lot of beautiful things in there because I can hear you talk about you and Rue as parents buy into Zoe 110% without question. That's what she needs. That's amazing parenting. That's amazing parental role modelling in being able to keep it comfortable and safe with no regrets, no doubts, no no shame in that as well. I think it's beautiful. Yeah, and quite rightly, I think you, you hit the nail on the head there. The doctors are being, they're coming at it from, this is the, the worst that could be, and I need to tell you that. Mm. And I hope that some of them feel that they're going to give you the worst news possible, that that sparks something in you as a parent or in you as a patient that makes you want to fight against it or or to to rise above the occasion and that's that's pretty much how we handled the entire situation i think um but um to look at it from the perspective of you've been told that something cannot happen and cannot eventuate and four years down the line it still kind of looks like that's true from a mental space, you've gone, we have done everything we can. We have put in all of the time, all of the effort. Um, we've missed out on so many things. When's it going to be our turn? You know? Yeah. When is it going to break even? Is it going to break even? Yeah. Do we get, should we be continuing still? Do we keep pushing on for something that specialists have told us is not going to happen? And I can tell you, <laughs> <laughs> Wow, all the time that we have put in to Zoe's development, and as you quite rightly say, developmentally delayed, not hitting milestones at time appropriate based on averages throughout history. Yep, age-related peers, we would naturally say, yep. Correct. Um, at the age of six, so 2022, Zoe started to sit up on her own. Oh. A few months later, she started to leopard crawl. A few months after that, she was up on all fours trying to crawl. And today, 2023, she now crawls to anything that is taller than her oh. and attempts to climb up 
and she can get herself into a standing position. Wow. Her feet are stable enough, her hips and her core, her trunk is stable enough to hold her with support. And I've said it from day dot, probably when that doctor said to us she would never be a plane that could be fixed. I've said she'll, she will walk. I still feel that she might dance. And I know that takes a lot of coordination. Global developmental delay is a mental health diagnosis for individuals under the age of five years. The diagnosis is given when there's a clinical significance and the clinical severity cannot be reliably assessed given the condition. A child does not then meet the expected developmental milestones in several areas of intellectual functioning. So when I talk about intellectual functioning, what do I mean? Think about differences in brain processes that produce impairments of personal, social, academic or occupational functioning. The range of developmental deficits or differences varies from specific limitations of learning or control of executive functions to global impairments of social skills or intellectual ability. There are deficits in general mental abilities such as reasoning, problem solving, planning, abstract thinking, judgment, academic learning and learning from experience. The deficits result in impairments of adaptive functioning, meeting standards of personal independence and social responsibility, including communication, social participation, academic or occupational functioning and personal independence at home or in community settings. This diagnosis also requires a reassessment after a period of time. Now that we better understand global developmental delay, let's get back to the conversation. 100%. It's been a journey. It's been a journey. Just so that people understand a little bit more, the global developmental delay diagnosis. So she was so small um, and still in a, in stages of development, she's meeting incredible milestones and I love hearing her achievements. What they are looking at is, let's say, developmental milestones in language, in toileting, in speech, um, the way she processes information, in memory, communication, multiple things that we would look at as factors for a global developmental delay. Can you share, I guess, some of the things you were looking for or learning about with Zoe, wanting her to meet and then realising maybe she wasn't? Can you shed some light on that journey for us? Yeah, I think you're quite right in highlighting all of those different aspects of global developmental delays. Um, so many friends will say, but what does that mean? Mm. Um, the easiest way for me to compare it or to bring similarity when, when they look at their children is go, well, you know, at X age, child would be sitting. At X age, child would be crawling. Exactly, and a lot of them yeah. forget about the, the fact that uh, when it comes to eating, um, children naturally would either latch onto whether it be a nipple or or a bottle or whatever the case is and naturally start sucking and mm -hmm. and that's get their sustenance in and slowly but surely you would move them on to more solid foods and they naturally sort of go oh there's a spoon and they so their brains are processing that sensory input and they kind of know what to do with it it doesn't take too much repetition for them to to know how to to handle that and um, so zoe is delayed right across the board from physical movement to to speech to anything with regards to oral so obviously food swallowing the timing she often would would choke on on things because she wouldn't know when to swallow and when not to yep. when to 
when to to coordinate the breathing plus the eating it's a skill <laughs> and we don't think yeah. about having to develop that skill when we're so small do we no um, all of those things were delayed we had seen speech therapist while we were still in hospital and we continue to see a speech therapist now we see an occupational therapist we see a physiotherapist uh also now recently got her in the swimming pool which is doing wonders for oh. her aqua yes <laughs> hydrotherapy yeah um, and so we can see it in the fa- in the fact that she struggled to smile yeah. so controlling the muscles here that that whole response that was probably the first one that we should have noticed that was delayed I yeah think there was- actually that's an interesting one yeah their responsivity to um, external stimuli so normally when parents or an adult looks at a baby you see their eyes and their face or they get smiles or they yeah all those are really they're, they're smaller but they're very good to start to pay attention to interesting. And i think that was the first one i had noticed that she just didn't really seem to respond to mm-hmm. she had exceptionally hard to get a reaction out of her yeah. uh Slowly, we managed to get her to give responses to textile things. That sensory input seemed to work. So we would continue doing more textile things. There were a variety of different um, spiky, hard, soft, fluffy, sticky, wet, warm, because clearly there was a a nervous stimulation there Mm -hmm. that resulting in some form of a response. Mm -hmm. So that's the first one we tried to uh, push a little bit harder. And from a physiotherapy perspective, I spoke earlier about how she was exceptionally clenched up and her f- she would she would ball her hands up into her fist. Uh, so physiotherapy worked a lot on trying to massage her hands and massage her feet to get all of those uh, those tendons and nerves to sort of relax and relax. open up. Yeah. So that we could work on things like grabbing and holding on at a later stage. Mm. Uh, mm. I suppose mm. those were the early signs of the fact that developmentally she was struggling. And it took us yeah. months, months yeah. and months before her hands would open up so that you could then hold on to something or even they would just hand open up and now if you put something in her hand they her fingers might close but there wasn't a grip right yeah. so she didn't have a hand that she was to hold on to so yeah. all of that uh, from from a feeding perspective i remember the speech therapist was teaching us that when you place the spoon in her mouth to gently depress the spoon on her tongue which then forces the tongue to create sort of a, a bolus shape to make oh, a round yes. sort of shape. Yes. And that would then hopefully trigger that sensation that she needs to swallow what's sitting on her tongue. And we did that with every single spoon, with every meal, with and slowly, very slowly, I yeah. can now put it in front of her and she'll open her mouth automatically and she'll take the food. So it's been mm-hmm. years and all of those things. So again, she's now seven years old uh, non-verbal, but is vocal. There was there was no sound coming out of her for years, and mm-hmm. now she reaches a variety of different squeals and giggles and things. Which oh, is just amazing. amazing! You know what? I would I would absolutely love for you if you don't mind. I want to hear the incredible things that Zoe has been able to do and where she's at now, because I think it's such a great story of for lack of a better word, resilience, but it's a real gritty story that's a beautiful one for your family and for Zoe. Um, what are some of her great achievements that you're proud of? Thank you. Yes, I think each day she just gets just that little bit stronger. And sometimes because you're so close to it as a parent, I don't notice 
the fact that the the changes are as are as incremental as they are and that over time but most recently the fact that she's had this will this absolute innate drive to do something uh previously they'd spoken about um object permanence and whether or not if, if you play in front of her and then you remove it does she look for it again she didn't need to do that okay let's take a moment to understand what is object permanence so what is it in layman's terms it's a developmental milestone for an infant to know that an unseen object continues to exist even though they can no longer be seen or heard if you've ever played a game of peekaboo with a very young child then you probably understand how this works Consider an object being hidden from sight, such as by covering it with a blanket or something else, for example. Infants under a certain age often become upset when that item has vanished. This is because they're too young to understand that the object continues to exist even though it cannot be seen. Object permanence plays a significant role in the theory of cognitive development created by psychologist Jean Piaget. This developmental concept exists in the sensory motor stage of development, which is a period that lasts from birth to about age two. Piaget suggested that children understand the world through their motor abilities such as touch, vision, taste and movement, and babies have no concept that the world exists separate from their point of view and experience. This concept also frequently occurs in the diagnoses of Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, better known as ADHD, where the person needs constant sensory cues in order to remember things, which can make life more challenging. Aside from cluttering your space with tons of visual cues, object permanence issues can also be a factor in why someone with ADHD continues to not complete tasks from start to finish and abandons them altogether. This is multi-layered when it comes to a diagnosis of ADHD and creates a vicious cycle and negative patterns of behavior, although that's a topic for another episode. Now that we understand object permanence, let's get back to the conversation. Today, she'll seek out toys because she knows what that toy she Mm, wants. Yep. So that's a major thing for us. Then you can build on those things. You can start Which to build. Which is part focus. of her memory, right? Working memory, being able to have memory recall. Yep. 100%. And we can start to build vocabulary around that because now you can assign a meaning to that object or a name to that object. If I can call out an object's name, she knows what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. She can't verbalize it, but I can see her looking for it around the room. So again, speaks to memory. Um, her, obviously, the physical things are the things that most people can can understand because they saw she used to just lie on the floor in the center of the room if we if we had friends over and that was you know the sum total of what zoe was capable of Mm -hmm. whereas now she cannot she cannot and will not sit still Uh, so she will go from lying flat on her back in a prone position to rolling over onto her knees crawling across the room seeking out a toy then focus and seeing some person across the room and then take that toy with her as she yep. moves from one space to the next. And when she gets here, then she wants to be on her feet. Yeah. So it's incredible to have seen this complete, I could say 360, I want to say 720 degree yeah. change. <laughs> um, she has come an enormous way yeah. and so grateful for all the cheerleaders that we've had along the way that have continued to encourage her and encourage us. I think yeah. many people look at us and go, gosh, you guys are so strong. How do you keep doing it? 
And I don't, I mean, I keep thinking, but any parent would. Any parent would, yeah. The best yeah. your child hasn't been in this situation, so mm. I can see why it's foreign to you. But if you were in the situation, you would want the same thing. You would, you would yearn for the same things. Yeah. And you know what? Um, I mean, I, I think yes, agree. And then I just wish more parents and more people maybe had the same mindset or temperament as you around that, because it's such a beautiful thing that you gave Zoe the safety, um, and the environment and the home life to be able to be who she is now. And I think the beautiful thing that's making me smile is you now get to see more of her personality, more of Zoe, her flavor on life and day-to-day things. I think it's a really beautiful thing. So thank you for sharing that with us. It's an amazing story. Absolute pleasure. It's it's magic to live in this space. It really is. (laughs) I have a few um, ethos life questions. So at the end of each episode, we ask questions that are either a one word response. You can have a one sentence response. I know that it's not always the easiest to stick to that, but we'll give it a go. And I have three questions for you. Are you okay for me to ask you them? Fire away. Beautiful. What message would you want other parents to know about parenting a neurodiverse child? I think the message to other parents would be to ask the questions or to lean in. It's a very lonely space. Mm. It can be exceptionally isolating to have a child that is neurodiverse or has Mm. special needs. And we know that it's our world so we talk about it a lot. Yeah. We want to talk about it. We need to talk about it. We'd much prefer for you to ask inquisitive questions than to placate your own feelings by saying, I'm sure it'll work out so fine, or you're so strong. This child was meant for you. You know, God only yeah. gives children of special needs to people that can handle things like this. Oh, That's not agree. how agree. Agree. Yep. I would much rather you ask me about um, what Zoe is capable of doing or or ask me how I slept last night because a lot of those things are going to weigh in on how I go through the rest of my experience as a parent. So rather ask me inquisitive questions than tell me how good I am at what I'm doing. I, I don't need to hear that more often than not. No. So many things in that. I love it. It's, I'm going to sum that up. Remain curious and actually be interested in someone else's journey. The other part is, as we both know and have said before, having your supportive, positive relationships around you will always assist in adversity in life. So it's a, it's a, it's a great message out there for other people but other parents as well. Beautiful. What... Is one invaluable skill that you think helps you remain present and grounded as a parent in everyday life? I'm not sure that it's a skill so much, but it is something that I'm learning I need to do more of, and that's take time for myself. There, I've recently come across system regulation. I fully understand the importance and the benefit of exercise. Sleep is prime primary to getting uh, to being a, a focused and present parent and all of those things are always second fiddle 
I never put to be present requires for me to do something for myself so that my cup is full and then I cattle with every single day. And yeah, I did I answer your question? I think I answered your question. Um, I think so. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would even say that some, you know, the one message that I honestly have to sometimes correct or provide a bit of psychoeducation around for clients is you essentially need to take care of yourself first all the time to be present and there for other people. You know, you have to be okay to be okay for others. It's no different for myself as a psychologist. I have to take care of myself so that I can do the job and be there and be present for someone else. And I think it's an absolutely great message. Good one. What word or sentence, and you can go a little bit longer if you need, um, would you use to de- describe Zoe's life journey and her level of grit? Hmm. Her life journey and level of grit is phenomenal. <laughs> she has touched so many lives, Rachel. I cannot, I cannot believe. I mean, I must believe. But the number of people that have reached out and said, you know, she's doing so well, I'm so happy to see, I'm so happy to hear, whether it be nurses that were in the hospital when she was six months old that yeah. still from time might send a message. Um, her physiotherapist who has seen her since the day she was born, she just happened to be the physiotherapist in the hospital where she was born mm-hmm. and interacted with her then, but obviously in time became a physiotherapist. Um, she's almost become a an honorary grandmother because she's been with Zoe for six years. Yes. Um, and to see the joy in her face, knowing that Zoe has achieved so many things that she herself was unsure of. Um, I know Zoe has touched many lives and has inspired many people. And I think that's, that's phenomenal. What a gift. What a gift. Oh, I feel the emotion in that. I feel like you can't see it, but I can... I can totally feel that on my side. It's just such a heartwarming thing. And honestly, it's it's inspiring. I love seeing it. I love seeing the achievements. And it, it draws it back to the simplicity of life and what is special and what is precious. So I love this story. I love the journey. It's been an absolute blessing and privilege to go into the deep dive with you. So thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. It was an amazing discussion. Thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. If you'd like to access our team of psychologists for professional mental health support, please visit www.ethospsychology.org. Thank you for listening and subscribe to Life in the Cyclone on your favourite podcast listing platform to better understand psychology today.